This episode of the No Film School podcast was brought to you by Elements, human-centered media storage. Check them out at elements.tv, the new centerpiece of your facility, which is so much more than just storage. Hey everybody, this is Charles Hang for the No Film School podcast for the week of September 3rd. September doesn't have a 31st, right? It's October 1st, this Thursday? Ooh. I'm glad none of us know <laughs> this. I'm glad we're all like... Uh, <laughs> yes, it's, it's October 1st. Okay, I'm glad we're all adults. All right, hey everybody, this is Charles Hang for the No Film School podcast for the week of October 1st. 2020. I am here with editor-in-chief of No Film School, George Elliman. Hello. And No Film School writer, Oakley Anderson Moore. Hey, everybody. And we are going to be talking about a new program from Alamo Drafthouse that filmmakers are sure to love, in my opinion. We're going to be talking about a major film that has just wrapped shooting in the middle of the pandemic. We're going to be talking about upcoming grants that every filmmaker should know about and be applying for. In tech news, we've got some new lenses coming for RF mount, which I wanted to talk about the strategy behind that because I think it's really cool. And we're going to wrap it up with a political deep cuts this week on the No Film School podcast. Okay, so our top story this week doesn't initially seem filmmaker-centric. It initially seems party-centric. But there's a filmmaker angle that I think is really interesting about it. So Alamo Drafthouse, one of the best movie theater chains out there. They, they did have some drama a little while ago because their HR department did not handle some accusations of sexual harassment from patrons well. So like that drama's there. Oh, and they had, <laughs> the, they had the drama with repeatedly hiring the sexual harassing blogger. They did have that drama, but they did eventually fire him. Yeah. Separate from those two things, we all like Alamo Drafthouse because usually they're showing the movies we like. They take the projection really seriously. They have nice big seats. Um, they serve you food while you are eating. Although in my opinion, or this is actually my wife's opinion, the trench that like the people walk in when they're serving your food isn't low enough. So the people have to <laughs> bend over too much. So you're sitting there like watching these poor weight staff bend over to serve your food. <laughs> and it feels really weird. And Alamo, if you're going to remodel, you should make a deeper trench. So they don't have to bend over to serve the food. Cause it just feels. I could, I could do a whole podcast just on what I don't like about food in movie theaters being served, <laughs> but we'll say, we'll leave that for, for the grouch cast for another time. But what see, about I love like, the hot chocolate chip cookies. When the hot yeah. chocolate chip cookies come like two thirds of the way through the movie, it's so good. I like the I just milkshakes. the person serving them. Ooh. Yeah. <laughs> but those alcoholic want- milkshakes, that's what I think is the best. I don't need food. I just need a mouth, uh, like a milkshake with some, with some booze in it. You just need a little <laughs> bit of a rum shake. Yeah. Um, I just want it to be served to me by a person who's able to have good posture. I just, <laughs> that's all I want. Um, but that's my separate thing. But set, there's a lot to love about Alamo Draft House. Um, yes. They have a lot of great theaters in a lot of wonderful places. And um, I don't think they're a milkshake duck. I mean, they're a little bit of a milkshake duck, but they're, <laughs> they're pulling through it. Are you guys familiar with this term, milkshake duck? No. no. What the hell is that? <laughs> I'm baffled. Uh, I, I recently learned this term. It is an internet term for something that you thought was great, but is actually terrible. And it was invented with a meme where someone made the joke. Um, everything on the internet feels like you just found a video of a milk of a duck drinking a milkshake. And then an hour later discovered the duck was really racist. 
And, huh, okay. uh, you know, so a milkshake <laughs> duck, whenever you discover something great and then like an hour later, you're like, oh, but it also. Oh, I see. Terrible. Like, it's like, I just saw, uh, you know, Manhattan for the first time. And then I found out Woody Allen is a creep. <laughs> Yeah, exactly. Um, like, that, like yeah, yeah. Okay. which like oh. could totally possibly happen if you're 16. Totally. Gotcha. Like if First you're 16, them, yeah. And you've never heard of Woody Allen, which is possible, and you watch Manhattan, or let's say any Hulk, because Manhattan. If you're 16, you should yeah, be know a 40 year old should not be dating. A right. Manhattan spells it all out. I think it yeah. would, Annie Hall would be better. Yeah. Any other number in, of great. Yes. Yeah, Annie Hall is a great milkshake duck <laughs> example because you're like, this movie's great. And then you go to Wikipedia to learn about the director because you're oh, no. better. And you're like, whoa, that's a milkshake duck. Um, Alamo Draft House, not a milkshake duck. I do not think that having their HR department learn and grow is, is it qualifies them as full milkshake duck territory. Um, but they're doing a really interesting thing, which I think is really relevant for filmmakers, which is they are allowing. Uh, patrons to pay $150 to have the theater to themselves. The first instinct we all have on this is, oh my God, we should get together and watch. I mean, Game of Thrones would have been three years ago, but whatever the new thing is you are watching now would be really exciting and great. Um, cats. I, I, cats. Ooh. But I actually think there's an interesting angle here for filmmakers. And there's two sides of this I want to talk about. One is, you know, this isn't going to be a revenue center for you, but the emotional experience of watching your movie in a theater with 300 people is one that like everybody deserves, like whether or not your project is destined to have a big theatrical release. I mean, when my feature premiered, we premiered in an old theater in Charleston, West Virginia. I think there were like 400 people in the theater. And like, nice. that was like an amazing emotional experience. And then we were able to do a theatrical run through tug, which Tug is no more, as you know. Yep. And so, like, <laughs> if you are a filmmaker, if you have made something, and maybe it's only going to end up living on Netflix or Amazon Prime because that is where we are right now, and that's that's the real world. I would rent the theater and offer a free screening to however many people Alamo will let you get in, just so you can watch your film with a large audience because it is deeply, tremendously satisfying. The flip side of this is I remember like 30 years ago when I watched the behind the scenes extras from Magnolia, P.T. Anderson had a film screening series preparing to shoot Magnolia where uh, he got the whole cast and crew together. I think it was weekly for a series of months before they shot to watch a film together as a group in a theater to prepare for the shoot. And they watched Network and a, a bunch of other films that were sort of relevant to Magnolia. And like, I cannot, like I've done similar things on a much smaller scale on my own projects. I'm like, there's something about getting as many of the collaborators together as possible in a room to share a screening emotionally together that I don't think you can replicate digitally. And I think if you are prepping a project or you are just, you have a gang of collaborators you work regularly with, you know, film collectives are something we really encourage and we promote. Like, I think there's a huge opportunity here to rent out the theater and then find a way to get your collaborators together on a regular basis for in-person, socially distanced, shared screenings of movies. Because then yeah. you walk out, you go to the lobby, you have that conversation. I think filmmakers should be aware of it. I didn't know it was happening until we started talking about it for the podcast. And I think it's something that filmmakers should be taking advantage of. I also respect that Alamo is trying to figure out how to, how to, how to get through until, uh, until something allows them to be back to normal, whatever normal is. In the yeah. Future. And 150 bucks. I mean, you know, that's just so cheap. And, you know, we, we released Brave New Wild through Tug as well. And we had a screening at Alamo Draft House in Austin. It was so much fun. But as I recall, even then with, you know, 
cost sharing. It's like you couldn't even for all anything for less than like 500 bucks or at, at Alamo. So like $150, that's most of us can afford that. But I guess my question is how many people can you bring in for that $150? Alamo, according to the story by Jason Hellman on nofilmschool.com, Alamo says the rentals usually house around 10 people, an entire pod for family members or friends who want a night out. In just the first few weeks, we booked over 700 groups of families and coworkers at just a handful of theaters. We're excited to expand this program to more locations across the country. Uh, I agree with everything you guys have said. And I and some of the things you've said have made me think about this in another light. Um, you know, film schools or programs or collectives could use this to do educational screenings as well. Um, they could use this to screen. One of the great things about learning about movies is... Um, watching them and getting a, having a lecturer or, you know, yeah. uh, or, or a Q and a, or, um, in the instance of, you know, one of the film collectives, I guess you could call it that I was a part of was channel one Oh one, where all we did was make monthly shorts and play them at this bar in Hollywood. Uh, <laughs> awesome. you know, now that there were a lot more people and there was no COVID restriction. It was a different set, but I'm just thinking, uh, I don't know. I think they've moved that thing all online, like a lot of festivals and things. But uh, this would be a thing you could do where you could get eh, 10 people together who every month rent it out, make stuff, show it, you know, um, talk about it. Uh, but I love the idea of screening, you know, when I've made features or shorts and tried to get them in a theater or in a screening room just to screen for cast and crew. Um, it's expensive and difficult. This is a huge improvement in that area. Um, also, also to what you said, Oakley, and this is where my mind goes. If I were to take my family of four to a movie in Los Angeles at a nice theater, it would cost at least half, maybe a little less than what it would cost me right now to get an entire theater. So, you know, and, and if you add in concessions and parking and maybe going out to dinner, it's definitely pretty much over 150. So not a horrible deal. And if you split it 10 ways or more ways, because um, I, I have heard rumblings that there's other theaters that are considering doing this where you could go with 30 people because they're larger. Um, you could split that up and, and it would be worth it. Uh, and I think that this is exciting because the theatrical experience is so special and unique and any way we can keep it going is great. Yeah, I wonder if other theaters will like see what Alamo is doing and try this too, because it is just like a an entire nation of theaters doing absolutely nothing for the most part, unless they partially open. So there's like, because I don't have an Alamo near me, but what if a Harkins did this? You know, this is a plea from me to the world in general, but it would be <laughs> great if more people, so whoever's listening, take note, I'm begging you, more people with the available infrastructure or or with the space should like create their own drive-ins because right now, like when I looked at possible drive-in experiences over the weekend with my family, there, there was, you know, a bunch of them were playing like tenant. So I can't take my kids to see tenant. There's other stuff that was like, well, yeah, that doesn't seem right. But like if more people who have the space were just like, Hey, I'm pulling down a big sheet and I'm hooking up a projector and I'm going to play toy story, you know, like it just seems like something people should be doing and inviting people to drive in their car 
into a big lot. It's, you know, where I live is densely populated urban area in Santa Monica. It's not going to happen around me. But maybe where you live, Oakley. Yes. Uh, I don't know. Like, why couldn't people do stuff like that? I think we should all pitch in to give each other stuff to watch. I, I mean, I think Disney will hunt you down and find you if you try and do it with Toy Story. Maybe not but... sell tickets, but just do it. Like, just show it. You know, I honestly think they might even try and find you if you just show it. <laughs> too many people in the room, um, but maybe I'm underestimating. I don't yeah, know. You, Disney's you could, on it. There's always outdoor theaters. Normally, like they'll have pop up summer screenings, and you know they'll they, they'll go through the proper licensing of whatever, and I'm sure they give them a special summer screening sort of licensing yeah. fee. I feel like right now, you know, especially could be you know. You could be like, you could maybe legit show Toy Story or something else, but. Well, they, yeah. So like Empire Strikes Back was re-released in theaters, which is the strangest move recently. I guess they must have <laughs> planned it a while ago and it's like an anniversary. But I was thinking like, it's not like they're worried about making money on that, but why didn't they put it in drive-ins everywhere? I would, I would 100% go. I'm shocked that drive-ins, I mean, at the beginning of the pandemic, there was lots of like, oh, drive-ins are going to make a big comeback. And I thought they really were going to just like be a big thing, bigger than they have been. And maybe we need to interview someone who did a drive-through and just be like, this is how you do it. So then anyone listening can like, we can all start driving, <laughs> driving movie yeah. theaters where we live. Or not, but in my area, definitely. <laughs> <laughs> I think I think it would be hard where I am, but there are so many places in California where you could do it, um, and I think people should look into it for sure because it's, you know, how else are we going to see stuff? Yeah, yeah. At home, I guess, but we're tired yeah. of that. Yeah, yeah, exactly. and we want to see it big. Yeah. Speaking of big. Speaking of giant epic scale, our next story this week is a movie that has been shooting for a decade, but is not Richard Linkletter's boyhood. It's Avatar <laughs> 2 um, has finally announced that it is wrapped shooting. Now, this isn't James Cameron is no longer is not immediately out of work. You don't have to worry about him filing for unemployment. He now has Avatar 3 to 5 lined up and financed, and he's actually going to be shooting 3 to 5 altogether. So at this pace, that will take 30 years. But because <laughs> um, it was like 10 years for Avatar and 10 years for Avatar 2, although maybe he's getting faster as things go along. He says, um, so we have a story about it up on the on No Film School. He says that they're, fi they're now finishing three. So I think they made, so he says filming is nearly complete on three. Um, he said all of this to Arnold Schwarzenegger in an Austrian <laughs> World Summit one-on-one -on -one, which is interesting on its own um just the two of them chatting about this is kind of fun <laughs> uh i everything about avatar and the avatar sequels is like kind of self-parody at this point um because it's just like you said it's been going on forever the first one took forever it's weird that it's still a thing but james cameron is this fascinating figure in cinema where he's like by sheer force of will, I will make it a thing. Like, you cannot stop me. Like, if, if people don't remember, but Titanic was plagued with issues in its production and even leading up to release, and it was pushed back, and everybody was like, this is the biggest catastrophe. Like, it's going to be Cleopatra. Well, that's not what it was. Like, James Cameron just has this way of saying, like, you think it's not going to work? Wait till I show you how much it is. And that's been consistent for him. 
So I feel like the bigger the the gambit, the more he's going to prove us wrong, probably. And there's going to be Avatar 5 coming out when I'm 80, and it's going to be the ne- <laughs> the biggest movie ever. And I just that that's how James Cameron rolls. Like I expect that to be what happens. Um, His production delays on Titanic are actually the source of one of my favorite James Cameron quotes, which I quote all the time, which is no one ever walked out of a film premiere saying, well, at least it opened on time. And (laughs) I say that all the time to remind people that it is more important to make your movie right. It is more important to make it the best movie it can be than to hit your deadline. Deadlines can be very helpful and some people never finish anything without them. But like James Cameron is a classic example of like, you will push the release date a year to make the movie better. And uh, he has the luxury of being able to do that. But I yes. think it is a good thing to remember that like, you know, if, if your movie needs something fixed, find the time to fix it. Don't just be like, well, there's a deadline. So we're done. Here we go. Like, um, and I think that, you know, he's the, on the flip side though. Like, can you quote one line from avatar? <laughs> Do you remember um, like a single I just, solitary? Uh, I remember no. one character was named Sully. Yeah, I look, if we ha- if we're gonna get into what we love or don't love about the movies, that's a road I could go down, but probably shouldn't right now. <laughs> <laughs> but I don't know. But but I have just from the filmmaker's standpoint a tremendous amount of respect for his force of will, determination attention to detail. He's not from all everything. I understand the nicest man to work with or for he made Ed Harris sob on the set of abyss, which just seems like it's a little much like it Ed Harris. Yeah. It doesn't need to be like that. Like, yeah, it's just, it's like, that's not how movie making needs to go. But James Cameron is a force of nature. Force is the word I keep coming to But I, um, I would say that uh, what is really interesting about this also is how COVID interrupted them, but they are like, they got all the way back in and finished up. And he said, um, we were able to shoot and have more or less of a normal life. And we were very fortunate over where they're shooting in New Zealand. uh, They've had just a much easier go of this than we have, which is frustrating. Um, And we've, we know more and more filmmakers and sets are back up around our parts, but it's a shame it took so long and it's a shame it's been fraught with so much peril where they've been able to like get this thing in the can already. Um, I, yeah, but I, I guess I, I think that I'm, I don't love the first avatar as a, as just taste wise. I'm not super curious about the new ones story wise, but like everything he does, I just know he's going to be so dedicated to his specific his specificness that I, I will want to see it. Like I will want to see what he's been doing forever. What does this mad man up to? <laughs> That's where how I feel. What do you guys think? Yeah. And I mean, you know, because we're, we're talking like 10 years more or less that he's been telling us the avatar sequel is going to come out. But you know, I come from like the documentary world and I mean, honestly, 10 years, it's not that long considering, you know, like, <laughs> You know, because, yeah, I mean, I'm shocked if I ever hear somebody finish their doc in like two years. I'm like, good God, they must have had funding or, you know, which is the thing that doesn't exist for doc that often. But, you know, like documentary takes like four or five, six. I've heard of people doing stuff for 10 years. You know, we led with the joke about boyhood. But 
you know, there's like, there is something about time scales taking a long time. Um, but I do feel like part of that is like you're figuring out your story. So what I'm curious is in a, in the fiction world and the big budget fiction world, like what has been able, like, isn't James Cameron bored of working on the same <laughs> movie for 10 years? And I'm, and I'm like filmmakers, like, you know, this happens all the time. If you're working on a specific, uh, video for too long, you get really bored of it and you're like, God, I hate this. This movie sucks. You're like a five minute yes. video. If I have to work on it, if I have to make some edits like three months later. I'm like, God, you know, this sucks. I hate this. You know, this. So like, what is he I, thinking? I, you know what I mean? Such a good question. Um, I've, I've thoughts about it. I think that he finds ways kind of like George Lucas did. I see them as being kind of similar. I, I think he finds ways to push his technology and the demands of what he's doing to make it like a science experiment almost. And that, and that's my, my read on him and his work and that he's probably doing stuff. And this is kind of what I've heard from the, the whispers and rumblings from those I've known who've been around his sets that he just like finds strange things to obsess over and create in the, and, and that almost is why I think the first avatar was sort of cut and paste story wise, because it was just like, yeah, yeah, I need a story, whatever. Like Fern Gully's <laughs> Fern Gully's fine. Like I'll, I'll, I'll come up with some crazy computer stuff that I, that nobody's done. That's going to totally immerse me. Um, that's my take, but yeah. I don't know how you do that for 10 years. What do you think, Charles? I mean, I think I, I, so the first thing I want to say is there's some really early James Cameron movies I totally love. I also really have a soft spot for True Lies, which I think is a magnificent movie. So like yeah. the fact that I'm about to sound very harsh on Titanic and Avatar is not meant to say that I don't think he's like clearly a pivotal filmmaker, clearly does really interesting stuff, clearly understands something amazing about the zeitgeist that like connects deeply with people. And like, you know, clearly very comfortable with female protagonists action films earlier than other people. So like, you know, he is an interesting filmmaker. I agree with you. When you think about like everybody with all of our projects, you know, we're asking someone else to watch our movie for a year and a half, for an hour and a half, but to make a movie is a year. So I always talk about with my students, I'm like, you know, it's a bare minimum. The fastest you're through a thing is four years. Once you include like a festival run. And then if you get a release, like you're never, no project is less than a couple of years of your life. So you're always trying to pick things that are actually going to interest you for that long, but nothing actually interests anyone for that long, especially not something that's supposed to be 90 minutes. So we all develop all of these strategies to continually find ourselves reinterested in a thing. Like, how do I wake myself up and keep myself fresh and new to this thing? But like, you know, yeah. I've been writing something for the last six months and it's like, I have to keep re-energizing myself and we haven't shot a frame yet. I've just been writing it for six months. So it's, and I agree that I think Lucas, I actually think what's interesting is that I think Cameron is even more using technology to keep himself interested than Lucas. Like, I don't yeah. love the prequels, yes. but yes. I will give George Lucas credit for the prequels that he legitimately tried to take Star Wars and pin a big picture about trade wars and politics and like, you know, I, I don't love them, but I love the ambition. I love yeah, that he tried I, to do I agree. It. He just was like, I'm a weirdo and I've got some weird ideas and you're going to let me do it. I have the money well, and I'm going to do it. Like, I mean, in a weird big. way, the, I, I should make a video I say about this. In a weird way, the prequels are kind of about the same thing that The Wire is about. Like they're both about <laughs> society and how society shapes an individual and what power we have within 
a society that shapes us to be a certain thing to change that destiny. That is and a like, video essay I want to <laughs> see. All right, we. Uh, I might I, tell me on Twitter if that's what you're interested in. So I think the I think the Wire probably arguably told that story better. Maybe, but there <laughs> but there are more memes about the prequels than there are about Wire. The Wire. So for measuring society and meme creation, the prequels win. But also, if we're measuring society and meme creation, um, I see. I still see Titanic memes all the time, not just crying Leo Titanic memes, but other Titanic memes. Like Titanic still touched something in people. And I don't think I've ever seen an Avatar meme. I don't think I've seen one ever. Oh. And I think that that's what's interesting. Like that is the thing for me is that like. The mimometer. You know, my, I call it the mimometer. Yeah, the mimometer. I mean, that's how you tell if it connected <laughs> with the people who create, you know, culture. It's like, mm-hmm. you know, you see Django Unchained memes everywhere because Django Unchained hit a nerve. Right. And like, because it hit a nerve, it, it becomes part of the zeitgeist. So I agree with you that I think, you know, I think that somewhere there's a 90 minute cut of Titanic. That's just an amazing movie about a boat sinking with none of the love story in it. And I think that's what James Cameron <laughs> thinks is his movie. And I think he shoehorned the love story on top of it. Cause it feels like it doesn't feel fully integrated. It feels stuck on top in my opinion. I think and I feel like, you know, that too. I agree. And I feel like avatar had the same thing of like, yeah. Avatar is just Dances with Wolves, which is just that Sam Peckinpah movie um, that Dances with Wolves ripped off. Like it's the fourth or fifth version of that same story. And I think that's okay. Like we retell each other's stories all the time, that everything is a remix. I, 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 I'm with that. But, you know, the thing about Avatar is there's nothing emotional that hooked me that still resonates with me that I find myself still thinking about. And that's what's interesting to me about movies is like when – Four years later, something, you know, I see a certain like change in the light. I'm like, oh, yeah, that feeling from that movie. And I had no feelings at Avatar. I think very few people did. I just remember having like a headache from the 3D glasses. (laughs) (laughs) Maybe that's why I can't remember any of the dialogue because I was just like, oh, what is happening? (laughs) I think I was hungover when I saw it. Yeah, I would agree with both of you on these on this. I, I would just add, though, that I think that what you're what you're coming at here, Charles, is something I think about a lot, which is that everybody in the industry talks about story. Story is everything. But I think that that's not all. That's not the whole story. No pun intended. The whole thing is meaning. And like a story can be executed fine. It can compel you to watch. The plot can move forward. But does it mean anything to you? Like, is it about anything that touches you or that people care about? Because if there isn't like meaning created through the story, then it's still sort of an empty exercise in plotting. It doesn't like it can be entertaining, but just like there was, I I know there was an attempt at meaning with Avatar, but it was not new meaning. And it was not, it, it did not like, although Let's be fair. There are people who like became crazed about it and wanted to go to whatever the planet was called and painted themselves blue. And there was a whole like weird fan culture. So it it definitely connected with some people. Are Um, they making memes though? Those people? No, I don't think so. I think they were more like a thing that happened right at the time. And I think it was almost like a small community of it. It didn't look, I think we can agree. It didn't, it didn't change. It's not Harry Potter. It's not Lord of the Rings. It's not, it's not one of these things that like cut into the mainstream of, of culture and like influenced everybody. It's just this playground for him and people want to see what, what his new toys are basically. Yeah. I can't, I can't wrap it up better than that. 
Elements Bolt is a groundbreaking storage solution, offering up to 10 times the speed of an SSD-based system. Designed to deliver amazing performance to every department in your facility, from scanning to color grading, editing, VFX, and GFX, Elements Bolt will put an end to stuttering playback, slow copying, or proxy creation for offline editing. This flexible, high-speed storage platform can supercharge any professional post-production environment and even provides native Avid bin locking functionality. Every Elements system is jam-packed with amazing tools and features developed to help with day-to-day post-production tasks. The extremely intuitive user interface is designed with creative people in mind and can easily be used with little to no IT knowledge. Ready to boost your performance? Find out more at elements.tv bolt. All right, up next, if you want to play in your playground, a grant can help you get there. <laughs> nice. I'm, I, if there's a podcasting transition award, I want to be nominated for it. Yeah, you're up for <laughs> just it. putting that out there. If there's like just, just transitions, um, if not, someone needs to start that. Uh, and probably John Oliver at Last Week Tonight needs to be the person to give it out. All right, so um, speaking of grants... Uh, Oakley, do you want to tell us about some of the big grants that are coming up this fall? You do the the quarterly grants every filmmaker should know about list. Yeah, we've got a massive list of fall 2020 grants up. And so basically the trend that I'm seeing is that there's two ways that organizations that normally fund have gone. One is they're not funding at all right now, or they've gone under. <laughs> Or they're funding more than they had before to try to compensate for how many artists are hurting right now. So so what you'll see in massive list of fall 2020 grants is there's less funders, um, but some of them are funding more. And almost all of the funders who are, are funding this fall are sort of the well-recognized, established institutions. The exception would be Tribeca Film Institute, which unfortunately is on pause slash completely gone. Um, that was sort of like the big shock earlier this year in the middle of the pandemic is that Tribeca Film Institute, which already always has all these really cool things, are basically not around anymore. So that leaves us with, in the documentary world, you've got, um, if you live in California, one of the big humanities grants, there's California Documentary Project. They've put out more funding than they normally do. And um, Sundance Documentary Fund just opened up. And of course, they're huge. And they... <clears throat> fund, you know, usually 15 to 40,000 bucks, depending on what part of production you're in. And they just reopened um, for submissions for fall. Um, so that's in the documentary world. In the narrative world, you've got um, Film Independent has their project involved, which is always a really cool program for voices who aren't always heard and are encouraged to come out and be filmmakers. And then other stalwarts is like, San Francisco Film Society, SF Film, they've got the Rain in Filmmaking grant opening opening up. I don't think it opens up till October, but that's a really cool one. And you see all kinds of good films come out of that granting program, like Sorry to Bother You, Monsters and Men. Um, I think one of the first ones that I remember was Beasts of the Southern Wild went through them. It's a grant that's sort of for narratives that have something to do with social justice, but it doesn't have to be like 
um, a moralizing film. It just has to have some interesting topic that, you know, could tie in to social justice issues of our time. So those would are, are sort of the big recognizable ones that just open up. And, you know, I know someone even commented on this fall 2020 grants post, like, does anyone ever get these? Are these real? And so, yeah, the small grants are sort of sort of not there right now because I think they're just trying to figure out what the hell to do or they don't have any money. But the big grants are there and people do get them. It's just really competitive. So, yeah, I think that, you know, we I'm thank you for doing it, as always. Oakley does this list for us quarterly on No Film School. Um, And the great thing about it is that uh, it's got links to all of the grants and it has a deadline listed. So scroll through. Plenty of these deadlines haven't come up yet because we're at the beginning of fall, really. But Oakley always gets them out in advance um, of the season. So there's screenplay competitions. There's uh, there's definitely different ways for you to get an opportunity. Um, and, you know, it's good to keep an eye on what's out there. I think that this is a useful thing. Um, some of these... Some of these kinds of things are invitations into a community. So like Sundance is obviously huge, but once you start, it's a good example because like once you get into that community and you're working there, you're going to meet people. Um, So I always think that these are good because they're ways to connect to other filmmakers, which is the lifeblood of collaboration and careers. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, sometimes deadlines are really helpful to you as an artist. You know, maybe you're just trying to get your next draft of your script done and there's a deadline coming up. So it's it's a good excuse to just advance whatever project you're working on. And another thing I'll say, too, is that don't feel bad if you apply and don't get in unless it was like some shady grant and you spent like $75 to apply. In that case, feel bad. But with documentary world, especially, um, you know, I hear all the time people applying to the same grant like ITVS, I applied and on my eighth time applying, I got the, I got the money. And some of nice. that is, yeah, exactly. I haven't heard that. That's good to know. In documentary happens all the time because also then you reach out to the, well, I, maybe the grant people reach out to you, maybe they don't. It depends on how big or competitive or who, what sort of the institution's take is. But sometimes they'll say, oh, this was interesting. Thanks for applying. Didn't fit this time. Apply again next year. Like, whoa, apply again next year. Okay, I will. And then maybe like you said, George, sometimes it's about just getting to know that community and becoming part of something. I mean, some people would use the word networking, but I don't really see it like that because it's just like, this is what these people want, who they are. They can just help you fix your script or fix your idea, your documentary edit, like you can get to know them. And there's a lot of instances where the same project will see several applications and then finally get the grant money for sure. Yeah, I mean, Miranda July likes to tell a story, I heard in an interview once, where she just kept applying for Sundance Lab (laughs) until she feels like they were just tired of her. And they were like, all right, maybe we'll let her in one year, and then she'll stop applying. So there's that. I also think, I mean, your point about deadlines, I think, is a really powerful one, that like, even if you never get into any of these grants, the energy you put into the application can sometimes, you know, they ask you for a 750-word synopsis. And if you've never done that for your script or your project before... That's a tremendously helpful exercise to do to really get a handle on precisely what you want to say. It's also a really true thing in life that when you do have opportunities, you often have to um, follow up on them quickly. Like when I've met producers that I might want to work with, or when I've met people that might fund things or whatever, usually they're like, oh, send me, send me what you've got. Send me where it is. Send me, you know, send me your pitch packet or send me the draft of your script. And you know, you have a day or two to do that. You can't really email them three months later and have, expect them to remember you. And if you just finished a grant application, you have everything together and polished and you go through and you make sure 
you change everything to take the word grant out of it and you can send through your materials as it is. So like there's a power in that. Like I have a full-time teaching job now and I applied for my first full-time teaching job set nine years before I got this one. And I remember at the time I was a finalist for that job nine years before I got the one I have now. And I was so devastated when I didn't get it. And my buddy was like, well, but you just like think about all of the work you put into that application and how much that's going to help you for the rest of your applications in this world. Um, and it was a really like, it was the right thing when he said it, it was true. My, my academic applications got better. Nine years later, I finally ended up with a full-time teaching job. Um, so, you know, there's, there's something to be said for just doing like, you know, doing the work, whatever that is. If you're an actor, you go to auditions. If you're a filmmaker, you work on your projects, you write, you shoot when you can, and you apply for funding. Like it just, it's part of the work we put in. And one more, I agree with that a hundred percent. And I'll add another little wrinkle to it that I think is useful to keep in mind. Uh, one way that these industries kind of weed out people is by, you know, who gives up. And I, it sounds harsh, but there is just like a, if you persist, you will develop and grow and learn. And if you have the ability to do that, then your odds are better. I've seen it happen to people who are come here, not connected. If you don't persist, then that's probably because you don't want to, and you're, and the energy isn't there. And that's a good thing for you and a good thing because it thins out. It's a good thing for the people who want to persist. So, but I'd also add that, um, the good thing about having these deadlines and going through this process is that validation, obviously internal validation is the biggest thing, but if you get some sense from the outside world, from a grant, a contest, a lab, whatever, that there's something to your project, then it gives you reason to believe because it means there is something to your project. You can only take something and you only should take something maybe so far, if it's entirely in your mind. We love stories of somebody who champions their cause, nobody believes in them, and they prove everybody wrong, right? But there's got to be somewhere along the way that somebody is like, oh yeah, there's there's gold in them hills. like Because otherwise, it, it, I mean, again, we love that idea of somebody who just pushes it all the way through and then everyone's like, oh my God, nobody believed in you and you did it. But that doesn't really ever happen without someone along the way reading it and saying, this is really good, you know? And I think it's really helpful to a creative to get something in the hands of a lab or a manager or someone or a grant and have them say like, I believe that you've got something here. That tells you that it's worth pursuing. And harsh truth again, if you don't hear that time and again, it might be a good idea to try something else. By which you mean a different project, not yes, like yes, a yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, no, we don't have to go that dark yet. <clears throat> but it no, might I, be time to go to law school. Yeah, yeah. Uh, that's a whole other thing. Again, I feel like the theme of this podcast today for me is like not going to the dark place. <laughs> not going. <laughs> we'll to the leave. Dark we'll place. leave that for another day. Moving on. <laughs> Moving on to tech news. I, I wish there was. I wish it was a light, so I could say this light's going to take you out of the dark place. <laughs> But yeah. it, we're not talking about lights today. We're talking about lenses. Very frustrating. Um, but we're talking about uh, some lenses coming to the Canon RF mount. And I want to talk about these lenses, but I also want to talk about sort of a bigger thing that's sort of interesting that's happening that I think is sort of a smart thing to pay attention to. So, Laowa 
is a lens maker from Southeast Asia. They, you, you might know them as Venus Optics. They make a bunch of interesting things for cinema and they make them, you know, uh, they make a snorkel lens, which I reviewed a couple of years ago, which was super duper fun. Uh, only opened to an F14, but you could get these insane snorkel and macros with it. I had a really good time with that lens. Um, Lawa is moving all of their super wide glass over to Canon RF. And the reason why I think this is news is, you know, lens makers release in different formats all the time, right? Like these same lenses, um, the, they call them the zero D lenses for zero distortion. They have a nine millimeter, a 12 millimeter, a 15 millimeter. They're all super wide lenses. Um, but they're optically designed so that you're not getting that barrel fisheye distortion effect. You're getting like a very nice pleasing effect out of them. Um, you know, they're all available in MFT and X and a bunch of other mounts, but they're already moving over to RF mount. And that's particularly interesting to me because, um, these lenses are not designed to discover, to cover the full frame sensor, right? They're not designed. And the RF mount from Canon is really, we think of as being like a full frame sensor mount, although you can shoot most of the cameras in crop mode. But what's interesting for me is this says a lot, I think, about the industry moving towards RF as a sort of full frame mirrorless mount that we're all going to be supporting, right? Because the red kimono is coming out this fall. It's RF mount. Obviously, Canon just came out with a C70. That's RF mount. Um, Blackmagic hasn't come out with an RF mount yet, but we all know that the next pocket is not going to be EF mount almost definitely. It's probably going to be something like RF. And so I think it's really interesting to start to see we're getting a lot more press releases about this than we are. I mean, I get almost no press releases about Nikon's um, full frame mount. And I get almost no press releases about what I was hoping would be the standard, which is the L mount, which is Panasonic, Sigma, and Leica together do the L mount. But we're seeing all the third party manufacturers like Lawa and Venus, Lawa Venus Optics and a bunch of others are jumping on the RF mounts a lot faster. And I think that tells us something. And it's good to pay attention to these things when we see them out there because it tells us a little bit about where markets are going and what standards we're settling on. I also wanted to shout it out because, you know, a, a whole lot of people are competing in this like thousand to two thousand dollar space, right? There's um there's Irex, um Zine is a little more expensive around three thousand lens, but there's Mike and there's there's a bunch of people competing in this space. And I think it's really interesting that instead of trying to do a full line straight up, Lau was like, we're gonna get famous on super wide lenses. And, you know, a nine millimeter lens is a very, very wide piece of glass. I mean, it's not as wide as like the classic 5.9 millimeter that they shot most of Soy Cuba on, but it's still a wide lens. And um, I like it as a strategy. I feel like everybody needs sort of a move if they're like, here's the thing that's going to get people to pay attention to me. And um, I think that this is, an, I, I think it's a smart angle for them to play. Um, they're starting with the weird outliers, the crazy macros, the super wides. And I think what will end up happening is you'll see a lot of people who have like a set of sigmas or a set of zines, and then they pick up one or two weird lawas just to extend out into the weird fringes where the other manufacturers don't have anything. And then they'll get to know the lawas because no one else had something in that space. And I think that's kind of smart. And I like giving shout outs to people who do weird stuff. Yeah. So like, how does, what is different about, like the mechanism at work with the RF mount. I mean, I don't know if you can speak to that, but like, you know, like how, like why, how does it work that makes it, like why do you see it as what people are adapt adopting? Uh, honestly, I don't think that there's a big technical difference between Sony E-mount, Canon RF mount, and L-mount. I think that they all function very similarly. I think we are literally seeing path dependence. 
Canon with the 5D had a huge hit and it had a huge hit in motion pictures. And the first non, like, you know, because when I first started out, cinema lenses were PL or PV. That was it. You had positive lock, which is everything except Panavision, or you had PV, which is Panavision. But because of the 5D Mark II and then the 7D and then some other cameras, you started to see like cinema lenses where you're like, oh, I could buy it in PL or EF. Like the compact, uh, the Zeiss Compact Primes came out EF, and it was very weird. I was like, "Why would you do that?" And then I was like, "Oh, you would do that so you could just mount it straight to your 5D Mark III or whatever." And I think that Canon became very dominant in that space in that time. And even though we haven't had an RF camera be a hit yet, uh, because you know the R5 hasn't been a huge hit yet, although we're thinking it might be. I think the C70 will be a huge monster hit personally, but we haven't seen sales. We don't know where that is. Frankly, uh, I think we're seeing the play out of working relationships. I mean, Red Komodo going RF is a big one. And, you know, Jared from Red has talked about working closely with Canon on the integration so that they could work with the Canon autofocus in the Canon autofocus lenses. And like, that's a relationship they probably developed making EF mounts for earlier models of red. And that relationship played out here. I don't think of, I off the top of my head, I've never shot red with, I mean, I've never shot red with an EF mount, but I know they exist. I don't know if there's an E mount for red. So Sony and red didn't develop that working relationship. So I think we're seeing working relationships play out that are going to point towards RF, maybe becoming sort of more of the standard for, full frame mirrorless i'd hope for l just i like open alliances when a group of companies get together and support something so i personally was really like rooting for l and i'm going to continue to root for l um but you know i get a lot of press releases from lens manufacturers and outside the sigma panasonic leica world i don't get nearly as many for l as i do for rf and i think that it's just because manufacturers see the writing on the wall that Already, other companies are jumping on, other camera body manufacturers are jumping on RF. The real decider will be if we have a hit camera. If the C70 sells like it should, like we assume it will, that'll really just put the nail in the coffin, I think, and RF will sort of take off. So are you did, are you testing out the new Blackmagic 12K, the Ursa, that you, yes, just, got, that so you just got delivered? Right now, here on the podcast, you guys heard it here first. <laughs> No Film School will be doing a hands-on review of the Blackmagic 12K. I am so very excited. Cool. We are all I've not excited. Been this, yeah. I've not been this excited to do a review of a camera in a long, long, long time. It's a legitimate <laughs> new sensor design. I am super excited about it. And uh, I was getting texts from FedEx. I even turned on my text notifications from FedEx, which I never do, <laughs> to find out when it's coming. And it came literally while we were recording this podcast. As soon as I click cut on this podcast, I will be opening the box and shooting stuff today and tomorrow with the 12k and i cannot wait to write this review and talk about it on the podcast because it is it's the first new sensor design other than x-trans and i love you fuji but x-trans is not as revolutionary as what i think black magic has can you can you shoot an unboxing video (laughs) i've never done that but now now would be the time right i think your enthusiasm over it is worth capturing Ooh, i'm excited to share all right and that that leaves us with deep cuts Politics and election edition, dun dun dun, which is actually appropriate because I voted today. Ooh, nice. good for you! Everybody, go out there and vote. Yeah. Literally, the second you get your mail-in ballot, do it then. Like, just immediately do it. Did you put okay. yours? In, did you put yours in the mail, or did you like take it to like a drop-off box? That's what I'm trying to decide. I, I I put it I put it in the mail. Nice. 
I believe in the post office. I bought a lot of stamps. I've been <laughs> I've been a long time post office fanatic. I worked on a documentary called Going Postal back in 2008, and I learned a lot about the post office then. And I've been a huge, huge post office fan and defender for the last 12 years. And anytime it comes up socially and people trash on the post office, I get I get very worked up and give long rants about how wonderful the post office it's an, is. It's a very important service. It's in the Constitution. Regardless, for politics and elections, I want to give a shout out to a movie that I can't believe I'm going to have to give a shout out to. And I can't believe I'm about to call it Deep Cuts, but I'm going to do it. Y'all should go watch Citizen Kane. Mm. Now, I can't believe I have to say that. When I first started teaching 15 years ago, every year, I, you know, I show Kane in a visual design class because there's a good use of depth and flatness. And he does a really good job of continually going back to flatness. So depth feels deep again. It's not a deep space movie. It's a deep, flat, deep, flat, deep, flat movie. He uses contrast really well. Or they, because Greg Tolan uh, and Robert Wise were really part of that visual design team. And 15 years ago, I would show it. And every single student was like, oh, yeah, I've seen it two or three times in various classes. Now, every time I show it, it is the first time it's been seen for 80% of my students. And um, I think Kane's worth watching for a lot of reasons. His visual design is really well done. It's an interesting achievement from an important filmmaker. I think it attempts to talk about love and feelings of inadequacy and desires to control other people in a way that feels very modern. Um, and I mean modern in terms of like our post 1980s understanding of connections to other people and the way childhood trauma plays out as an adult. Like it is a movie about someone who's forced away by his mother who doesn't feel like she is enough who spends his whole life not feeling like he is enough and trying to build a world around him to to exterior to him to fix interior problems and it's fascinating it is also about someone who's politically ambitious um who is brought down by scandal during an election and there are some really interesting sort of things about an election in it and people forget that there's an election in the middle of citizen kane that he runs for governor that he thinks he's going to win governor um, and that it is all sort of undone by scandal. So I think it's like, you know, it's a really, I think Citizen Kane is great. I really love that movie and I have a lot of affection for it. It is by no means perfect, but, uh, I'm going to call it a deep cut because of the astounding number of my students who haven't seen it. That is so sad to me because I think it's definitely the most important American film of all time. Bar not easy for me. Um, so that's a shame. But, drive in uh, yeah, movie thanks theater. for bringing it up. Love it. Yeah. <laughs> I've seen it in theaters so many I've seen it so many times. So my election film isn't really about an election, but I decided to go with this one while we were talking about James Cameron and Titanic because it has to do with everything that elections involve. So I would say everyone should go watch The Pervert's Guide to Ideology. Have you guys seen this one or heard mm, of this one? No. Oh my gosh, okay. If you are a self-respecting filmmaker, you should you have to watch this. It's a documentary. Wow. It's a sort of hilarious but eye-opening documentary by Sophie Fiennes. And it stars, I guess you could say, this Slovenian theorist whose name is Zizek. I think it's Slava Zizek. So, Slava Zizek. Yes. 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 Okay. Yeah. Okay. So Zizek, so what he does in this film is he goes through um, he basically just goes through popular movies and unpacks the ideologies at work inside of them. So he does um, in in the Pervert's Guide to Ideology does Taxi Driver, Jaws, um, and he does Titanic, which is probably one of the best scenes. And he 
And what's really cool too, is they actually reenact all these important scenes uh, from all these movies. So in Titanic, they, they reenact the scene where Jack is in the water and Rose is on the raft. Um, and I think he's playing Jack and he talks about what the ideologies are at work. And so I don't want to give anything away, but since we're just talking about Titanic, um, he speaks to James Cameron's use of class and how all of James Cameron's movies are coming from this upper class mentality and where the ideology at work that he reinforces in all his movies. And it's just, it's hilarious. They have this insane production value for recreating the scenes. And it really gives you this look at the ideology that's work in all the films we do. And you could say ideology, you could say propaganda. He, he touches on that as well. And all of these things are tools that I think as, as filmmakers, but also just as human beings, we kind of need to refine more so that we can, you know, vote intelligently and be a part of elections and whatever is happening on a small and large scale. So I think that, this, and I also just, this is like one of my favorite films my favorite documentary is that like no one's ever seen for some reason, but it's awesome. So the pervert's guide to ideology, the, the filmmakers, Sophie Fiennes and Zizek starring Zizek as he unpacks all of your favorite or least favorite movies and, and what, you know, ideologies are being used in them. That is a great deep cut because it is a deep cut and I hadn't heard of it and I'm really interested in it. Like usually we kind of fudge that like I'm about to, um, like, I mean, we, we do go with the kind of like, this might be a deep cup for some of you. Um, so I'm going to, this it's frustrating to do this. Also, it's nice to have a real deep cut because I listed literally the most famous movie of all time as my <laughs> deep cut. So it's nice to have Oakley actually balance it out with like a movie most of us probably have heard of. Like, I'm a Zizek fan in a okay, like gotcha. hilarious, I find him, and I'd never heard of the film. Cool. And yet I find him to be like a really charming, hilarious um, ridiculous character. <laughs> character. So, like, truly counts as a deep cut. Well, balances out my most mainstream movie of all time. So, what you got, George? <laughs> I, I, mine is gonna fall closer to Charles, just because I'm not. I'm, I'm basic at the end of the day. I'm basic filmmaker guy. Um, <laughs> I feel like this movie isn't about elections either, but it is about what elections are about. If you haven't seen Twelve Angry Men, you should absolutely see it. It is about a jury coming to a decision about a murder trial, but it covers it's so many topics that are so relevant to this moment we are in in history. It's probably always relevant, but here's the thing for filmmakers. The movie creates perfect tension entirely in one room. It's amazing that through just performances and editing and angles, you can create tension that holds people, that tells a powerful, compelling, meaningful story in one room. Whatever kind of filmmaker you are today, that means you can do it. You can tell a great story that stands the test of time with, you have everything you need. Now, you may not have Henry Fonda, but <laughs> you definitely have the ability to shoot a story in a room and you could do it even under quarantine. And that's part of why I think that movie is so important is because it's just, it's executing at the highest level with so little in terms of, of what it required. Um, and when we vote and what our political process is doing, especially right now, is creating the power to name justices. And even though that's separate from what a jury of your peers is, it's part of the court system and our judicial system, which frankly does not really work the way it should 
or the way we want it to. And we're inundated with information about this lately. And yeah, we've been getting a little political on this podcast, but this isn't political as in the sense that it's about taking a particular stance or side of things. It's like, just be in favor of due process, be in favor of what we're supposed to be doing here. Um, and what our civic duty is as voters, as jury members, as humans in this. Um, look, there's a problem with 12 angry men. It's 12 white men in a room making these decisions. That's a separate issue. But um, hopefully we, we've evolved to another stage of that. Um, just like when we were first voting in this country, it was just white landowner males. Um, but the point is, uh, for me, that it's a movie that is relevant to like what what is the purpose of society and what are what are we doing as a society and a civilization and like what are we supposed to do and how seriously we are supposed to take these things because at its core that movie is really just about hey take this seriously what you do in this room in this moment is important and here's why and it's a battle to get people to care and uh you will if you haven't seen it and you watch it you will understand how it applies to just the simple act of voting which is your right and and an important thing to take seriously just like if you serve in a jury everybody always wants to get out of jury duty right that's kind of what the movie is in a way it's like ah, i don't want to deal with this it's important that we deal with it um that's my spiel on 12 angry men it's a great spiel uh makes me want to rewatch it also shout out to the movie election which is called election and is about elections and is really good it's really good maybe the best election movie straight up election all right, with that, uh, let's plug our pluggables and wrap it up. My name is Charles Hain. You can check out me on Instagram and Twitter at Charles Hain. There'll be an unboxing video for the Blackmagic 12K, because <laughs> why not? And uh, you can always check out my web series at saltypirate.tv. And my name's Oakley Anderson Moore. It's fun to be on here with you. Thanks for listening, everybody. You can find me on Instagram at Oakley Louise. And I'm George Edelman, Editor-in-Chief at No Film School. You can find stories about everything we discussed today and a lot more on nofilmschool.com. Please be sure to like our Facebook page, follow us on Twitter, subscribe to the podcast, like it, rate it, comment on it. Let us know how we're doing. I hear all the time from people who enjoy things on the podcast. It means a lot to me that people take the time to do that. Ask us questions. We'd love to answer your questions. Email us at ask at nofilmschool.com or uh, editor at nofilmschool.com, whatever you want to know about or you want us to discuss. If you have thoughts about the things we discuss, we want to hear from you. We love the community aspect of what No Film School is. Uh, I want to just quickly plug a few things coming up. Obviously, Charles will be doing stuff with the Blackmagic 12K, and you're going to have to stay tuned for all of that. Um, we have a lot of cool interviews on this podcast that have that are coming down. We recently interviewed the cinematographer for... Um, Lovecraft Country, which is a really interesting HBO series going on right now. Um, and he had a lot of interesting takes on how he's shooting it. I also interviewed the cinematographer of Raised by Wolves, Ross Emery. He was fascinating. He worked on the set for The Island of Dr. Moreau with Marlon Brando. So if you want to hear some crazy on-set stories, you're going to have to listen to that one too. Hope everybody is doing well. Stay safe out there. And thanks for listening.